And now, coming to you live from the Gershon Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolf with very special guest Jack Dan on the Coot Street Podcast! And we're back with a with an old pal of the podcast. Jack has been here before, but, but Jack has a new book out which we want to talk about for all kinds of reasons, called The Fiction Writer's Guide to Alternate History, a handbook on craft, art, and history, uh, which is from Bloomsbury Academic. You've moved upstairs. You've got grown-up academic publishers now. You might as well be a university professor. Yeah, well, I, I get everything but the money. I mean, the, the university professor is the good part. I can tell you something I mean, about I'm still you. associated with the university. I just don't get any money. That's all. <laughs> if, if you were ever under the impression that university presses mean money, you were misinformed. <laughs> no, I, I mean the university itself. Oh, the university itself. I understand that. Uh, Look, it, it seems... I mean, let, let, let's get started because we have this book that you've got just coming out or just out from Bloomsbury. So let me ask as an opening thing. We know Jack Dan, the writer. We know Jack Dan, the editor where did this thing begin for you where did jack dan the critic writer and you know student of alternate history begin okay uh well it began as as me being a writer uh i wrote uh well i wrote the memory cathedral uh way back when which was my da vinci novel, which i consider a secret history mm-hmm. <clears throat> the idea was that uh Leonardo goes to the Middle East. He's, he's invited by the Devatar of Syria, and he gets to actually uh, make all of his inventions, turn them into reality. Uh, but I can, you know, I consider that a secret history, not alternate history, because mm-hmm. it it really didn't change the history as we know it. Now, I wrote a story for for Gardner, which I took from the novel called Da Vinci Rising. Uh, where his where Da Vinci's flying machine, you know, does change the history as we know it. So that that I would consider that I would consider alternate history. Uh, <clears throat> and I was lucky enough to to to, to manage my own nebula with that one. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but then I went on to uh, I went on to write my my James Dean novel called The Rebel. Uh, which poses the idea that what if Dean didn't die in the car crash and he ends up becoming governor of California, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. And I did a, a, another collection uh, of, of stories that did not end up in, 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 the, uh, in the first publication of the novel because it was like something like 300,000 words. So the, the yeah. editors got to work wisely on that. Uh, you know, and, and 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 I did another one called called uh, Shadows in the Stone. Now, while I was writing Shadows in the Stone, uh, I f- I got into a wonderful situation with the University of Queensland, where they offered to basically uh, pay my way to get a PhD and write the novel. Mm-hmm. So you know, so I I start I, I was working on the novel, and then it suddenly occurred to me after about what I was about two years in that I actually had to write a thesis and I had to <laughs> academic, which, you know, which, which came as, as a, you know, as a shock to my feeble uh, mind. <laughs> and so I started digging into, uh, I started digging in very heavily into my relationship with alternate history, why I was writing and what it was. How does it, mm-hmm. you know, the history, how does it differentiate itself, et cetera, et cetera. And the idea, which again, was new to this, you know, I mean, I, I've been, you know, basically a, a writer my whole life. So academia, you know, you know, critics were something to be feared, period. <laughs> but what I, what I learned is that the idea of doing the thesis and the novel was to, was to create new knowledge. Ah, which is why one chapter of the book essentially is your showing us your process and writing that particular novel. Well, part of that's okay, that's part that's part of it. But what I wanted to do, and what I what I tried to do in the thesis, is work out various models uh, in which you know the reader, the writer. Uh, can look at can look at any given piece of alternate history 
and and look at it from a number of uh, of of positions looking sure. and uh, and so again i took that idea of new knowledge seriously so what i ended up doing with the thesis well first of all i think i was allowed 80,000 words well once i started digging into it i mean it kept getting longer and longer in fact uh uh, one of the people working with me said, you know, you can not do the novel. You can just do the thesis because, you know, here I was, I was like, I was, you know, I was at a stage in my life where things are supposed to slow down. I mean, you hit your seventies, you're supposed to, you know, you're supposed to take it easy. Of course, you know, to do that, you need, you know, seven figures, but anyway. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, so what I ended up doing, I, I as I got deeper and deeper, in the thesis itself, there's like 30,000 words of footnote, you know, mm. as I tried to get around. And I got a special dispensation from the from the university because the, you know, the novel was, was what, 150 plus thousand mm. words uh, on its own. But you've already raised a couple so I did of... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, you go on. I was going to say, you've already <laughs> raised a couple of questions that uh, that I wanted to get at that you address in the book. You described uh, the Memory Cathedral as a secret history, but let's say the James Dean novel is an alternate history. Then you also talk about parallel universes. What are all the di- what's the difference between all these different? Th- these are different kinds of novels in which the present is not our present. But is it one that diverged at a single point in the past? It was one that was never part of our history. Is it one that is part of our history? But as you say in the Memory Cathedral, it's stuff we don't know. Uh, that so. Let's start with what's the difference between alternate history and secret history. Now, anyone who's listening to this has got to understand that I'm much better in the book itself where I've thought about (laughs) this and honed my thoughts. I mean, right now you're getting, you know, Jack the Raconteur who's going to say whatever comes out of his head. That's what we're looking for. But the idea for me is... In alternate history, you have a divergent point where the history that we know diverges into in, into a new history. Uh, with this, and 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 at that point, history is changed. It's not what we it's not what we know. So you know, a simple example is you know. Uh, you know, Philip K. Dick's novel where uh, where Japan and Germany win the war. Yeah, the man in the high I mean, cap. that's obvious, and it's easy. It's easy for readers to, to see to see that difference, yeah. which is why there's been so many. You know, or uh, you know, uh, or or you know, Kennedy. You know, John F. Kennedy isn't killed. All of the, you know, these the, yeah. these, these big ideas, uh, which which are easy to see, and you know, SSGB, uh, you know, a, a no, which is a detective novel uh, that takes place in in, in a Great Britain uh, that's that's ruled by you know by the Nazi. Okay, but a secret. Okay, so that's an alternate history. You could you, you may or may not see the divergent point. It may happen so far in the past, uh, you know, that that that, uh, that that it's just assumed, but it's a change. In a secret history, uh, nothing is changed in terms of the main line of history. So I have Da Vinci uh, go to the Middle East, and where I got the idea is uh, one of the historians actually believed that da Vinci was in the Middle East and that he wasn't just telling stories to entertain, uh, you know, uh, Duke Sforza. So so all the stuff that happens in my book in the Middle East uh, doesn't affect the history of the Middle East, in other words, nor does it affect it could have happened, right? something that could have happened without interrupting so, our so, actual yeah. understanding of, of the historical. Now, what about... What That's about right. the parallel world, parallel universe? Because the big thing now in media all over the world, the Marvel Universe is full of multiverses. And the Academy Award-winning movie last year was a multiverse thing. Uh, are these parallel worlds completely unconnected to our own but happen to look like them in a little way? Where do they fit into all that? Well, you know, I, uh, you know, Kim Stanley Robinson has said that, you know, like, all of science fiction, in a sense, because it, it assumes well, 
it assumes uh, the history that goes back to where we are. I mean, he, and he makes, in fact, I, I used, I, I mentioned that in the book, in the book, uh, because it, 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 it makes sense. I think, I think a lot of this depends uh, on the intention of the work uh, yeah. and how you want to define it. And I mean, one of the things I tried doing in the book was, was to deal uh, with, with a lot of these definitions. So uh, I think it depends on, uh, in the parallel universe, it depends on that uh, divergent point. What, yeah, sure. you know, how, how important is it as it goes back to where we are? Or is it, you know, if it's ju- or is it just a trope? But what we're getting into is the intricacies of definition, which, you know, most people, you know, are, sure. you know aren't, oh, yeah. aren't going to look at. And, and I got but into okay. that. Instead of calling alternate history, alternate history, you know, I said we need a definition like counterfactual uh, fiction because counterfactuals are basically nonfiction essay extrapolations uh, of possible, you know, of possible futures where and they're called alternate history, where 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 what we think of as alternate history, i.e. counterfactual fiction is actual fiction rather than uh, uh, critical investigation. History. Okay. If we have a framework for what an alternate history is as opposed to a secret history, and if you keep it even just something as simple as an imagined timeline where there's one or more points of diversion from the real world that we've experienced, that covers a lot from the most obvious, well-known kinds of alternate histories, like you know the uh, the South winning the Civil War in Less Darkness Fall, or mm. um, as we're talking about the Second World War going the other way in something like The Man in the High Castle. Question for you both, as someone who's now studied it and thought about it and written it, why? I mean, it seems to me that on one hand. Alternate history slash counterfactuals are just another version of the what if question in science fiction. Why do you think we're attracted to writing these alternate histories? What's what's the the, the, the point of them? The value of them? Do you? Well, I think I think the value. Uh, okay, to start off in a in a silly mode, the value is that fiction is experiential. Sure, it gives you experience that if it works for you in the right way becomes like personal experience. Alternate history, you know, as you know, as science fiction allows us to experience other future possibility in a way that uh, that a counterfactual itself, which mm-hmm. would stra- excuse me, uh, which would extrapolate uh, another future, a dystopian future. Uh, you know, take take Stan, you know, Stan Robinson's novel where. Uh, most of you know Europe is 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 is, is decimated by the, by the Black Plague. Uh, <clears throat> so, from a scholarly point of view, yes, it's a way, it's an imaginative way of dealing with future possibilities. But it's a visceral way of doing so. In that, yeah, I think it's fiction all- is experience. Uh, I, I taught a course. I taught a couple of courses years ago with a historian. I was the lit crit guy and he was the historian guy. One of them was teaching science fiction from a historiographical point of view. In other words, something like Foundation is based on a theory of history, kind of an old-fashioned one that's based on a co- coherent theory of history. And we did, one, we did a few weeks where we talked about alternate history. And from his point of view, it's a way of understanding historical processes by looking at things that might have happened that didn't. In other words... Uh, instead of history just being one damn thing after another, you look at it as one possibility after another. So his argument was not mine, but it was one, I, one that impressed me, was that it's a go- good way to understand the dynamics of history, that history is not inevitable, that it can go in different directions. And as you say, in fiction, those different directions become real on the page. That's right. And, and that's dependent upon the writer's uh, idea of history. Now, mm-hmm. and I talk as this is a book. I mean, this this is a book for can be read by general readers. But I wanted to talk to writers uh-huh. because 
you often the writer, I mean, at least this writer, doesn't know the theory of history that's behind it. So, I mean, when I was writing, I, I mean, again, Stan Robinson, when he did an introduction to, uh, uh, to, to my short story collection, Promised Land, he said, it would seem that I've got that, that my model is the is the you know the great man idea of history that it's you know that that it's important personages you know like Napoleon etc that uh, that dictate history where he makes a case that I'm actually you know doing the opposite and what I try to do in the book is I try to talk to 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 potential writers uh, and, and and people interested. <clears throat> as to for writers often the novel is, is a journey of discovery into figuring out how you feel about history mm-hmm. now some some writers know exactly what they want to convey what theory of history again robinson is yeah. one of them uh and and go you know and and goes forward with it so what i was tr- what i've tried to do is open up the problems that have to be encountered in writing alternate history for the writer. For instance, if you're writing, if you're writing about a divergence that everyone would know, i.e., you know, World the War. South wins the Civil War, right. you have you have no problem because most people are aware of that. But what if you're writing about a little known uh, bit of uh, history? That most readers aren't going to uh, aren't going to be that familiar with, and there are techniques that you can that that, that can be used. Uh, and in fact, uh, I include uh, I include an entire story by uh, 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 by by Lou. Hello, Louis Shiner. Lou Shiner. Yeah, what city? I, I know too many. I know I know too many Lou's. Uh, it's a terrific story, and I included uh, it's Louis Shiner's White City. The chapter is taking a break from me, mm-hmm. and so I offer the story with Lou's permission, and then I go through the story line by line, showing how you can use various techniques to acquaint the reader yeah. with it with information that she needs to know without. You know, without stuffing in huge, you know, narrative, you know, narrative chunks. Like, as you know, we're traveling in a spaceship right. going at. Do you think that. Go ahead, Gary. Oh, I was just going to say, isn't, isn't that kind of an alternate history version of what I think in the book you call Heinleining, the technique that Heinlein insisted upon in writing about the future? It should be a future in which you aren't lectured, but in which the events of the story reveal the future to you. And so you're you're saying essentially that version of that in alternate history is that the events of the story reveal what the change is without you having to explain it. Yes. Well, the idea is, I mean, Heinleining, you, you know, Harlan Ellison wrote about this, you know, I, I think wonderfully. He said, when he read, uh, and and right now, being an old guy comes in handy because <laughs> I can't remember the story. But when he read Heinlein's line, the door irised open, he knew yep. he was in a different world. Right. I mean, it was that shock, that 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 cognitive, you know, estrangement, whatever you want to call it, that immediately puts you there. And so that's you know, there are techniques like that because. If you're a discerning reader, okay, if you know the history, okay, if you've got a lot of these details will really, you know, give you that those little bursts of pleasure. Uh, if you're not, if you don't know the history, there's stuff that you'll miss, but there are ways to make it uh, comprehensible without doing like a forward or an yeah. afterward. I mean, one of the techniques think, that I sorry, go on. I was just saying, do you think the pressures on someone writing a alternate history or a secret or a counterfactual are more novelistic when they're dealing with a obscure 
a point of divergence. I mean, there's a whole bunch of, well, in fact, there's a small number of really common, widely known historical events that you can fork from. And that becomes potentially more of a intellectual exercise. How does this fall down? How does this go to this, to this? Uh, and you can follow through. And you can even argue that the most famous ones possibly are, are, are artifacts of the evolution of magazine science fiction in the sense that, you know, in the 19, 1940s, when, when there's a lot of mag, magazine science fiction, often that comes to the Second World War, were obviously on people's minds and very common, widely thought, thought about. But if you're going to write a book like The Yiddish Policeman's Union, right, or whatever, these books have quite a minor, a, a quite a, only slightly known point of divergence. So doesn't then the, the actual, the novel itself have to carry more as a novel in a way in order to fully engage with readers because they're not going to be able to do that work because for a lot of them, they, they honestly, to some degree, can't tell a huge difference between the alternate history and just being a science fiction novel. Yeah, look, I talk, I talk to the writer specifically about this and it's a decision. If, <coughs> I mean... <clears throat> If you, if the drive, if the yeah. reason, you know, that what you're dreaming about is to write this novel about, uh, uh, with a divergence point that's going to be esoteric to 80% of the people, you've got, you, you've got to take that into consideration mm. in terms of, you know, time and money. Mm. If you want to write the novel, then you write it and you realize going in that you've probably got a smaller audience yeah. than if you're going to, you know, write and an, a more easily accessible uh, divergent point uh, novel about, a, uh, you know, w- with with an accessible divergent point. But once you decide, look, I want to write it. I want to write this this book. I don't care. I got to write it. Then there are there are things that you can do to make it available to a larger to a larger reader. Uh, yeah. I don't believe that an introduction or an afterword to a novel, although I do this stuff, does the trick because most readers are not you know aren't going to aren't going to read that. But there, there's a lot of stuff that you can do interstitially, you know, in, in you know internally. Mm-hmm. To bring the reader up to speed, one of them is, you know, is Asimov's encyclopedia. You know, yeah. where before every chapter, remember he, uh, you know, he, he, he his Galactic Encyclopedia entry would give you information. Now, I use something like that in uh, in Shadows in the Stone, where I. I actually I adapted uh, quotations from the Gnostic Gospels, uh, some of which I used as they were. Others I shifted so they would work for the uh, uh, for, for the book to give the reader at the beginning of the chapter a kind of an a, of of a possible insight. Will the reader read that uh, that quote? I, you, you know, who knows. And the, the other thing, you know, so there's there's all of these kind of things that you can do. I I also use a list of characters because often if I'm reading a historical sure. novel and you say, you know, James Dean, I say, well, who the hell is James Dean? So I can look it up. So what I could do with those, if you did look it up, A, it could be explanatory. Uh, and B... You can. It's really interesting for the reader who who knows what's going on, because you're writing a short uh, bio of someone from the point of view of the alternate history. You know, so you yeah. know, so but, Nixon but, was a minor. But but, but to go back to uh, the, the novel that Jonathan mentioned, if you you're, you're not losing your audience with something like uh, the Michael Chabon novel, The Yiddish Policeman's Union, which actually was a huge bestseller among people who had yes. no idea what alternate history was. And all Chabon did was say, look, there was, there was a proposal to make a Jewish homeland in Alaska. And that's all you need. At no point in the novel do you really understand how we got from that idea to this uh, colony in, 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 in Sitka, Alaska. That I, I, think his, I think he felt his responsibility was just to write a good story given that as a premise. Um, but he doesn't explain things. He doesn't, he doesn't have encyclopedia entries. He doesn't have uh, much backstory on it at all. You just accept, okay, it's a, it's a Jewish homeland in Sitka, 
and go from there. Um, and to some extent, uh, bestsellers have begun to adopt these ideas. Chabon, there was Philip Roth's The Plot Against America, um, in which right. Lindbergh becomes president. Um, and, and, and to some extent, I think that those are novels that demonstrate you don't need to understand anything about alternate history uh, to, to, to enjoy a novel like. I mean, I'm guessing that most of the readers of those novels had maybe never seen alternate history before. In fact, I remember seeing an interview with Philip Roth at one point where he seemed to believe that he had invented the whole idea. <laughs> well, look, uh, when I'm, you know, when I'm talking to the writer about using this stuff, it has got to be, how do I say it? I won't, when I'm writing, when I'm working through a novel, uh, everything that's there has got to be organic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If I lose audience because of that, well, it's, it's, it's tough noodles on me. Uh, sure. Part of what you're saying here, I mean, you're listing people like, you know, my, if you're a best-selling writer, you can get away, you'll have a larger audience True. to get away with doing what sure. you want. I mean, I mean, you know, uh, the Roth book that you mentioned, well, people are going to read him no matter what. So in a, in a, in a sense, uh, he can educate <laughs> uh, people uh, uh, or, or, or invite interest in, 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 this, kind, in this kind of fiction uh, just because he's, car he's carrying that, you know, that audience. But uh, it's... The first point is you've got, you know, what's important is that you're writing the book that you want to write and that you're sure. not, you're not uh, selling out in any way, you know, to try to, uh, to try to dumb down your, your book. Sure, sure. Let me ask this. I mean, the book is, is titled The Fiction Writer's Guide to Alternate History. It's cast as a handbook on the craft of doing so. And we've talked about uh, definitional things and all this, and some of the techniques and whatever else. But from your perspective, are there particular reasons why the alternate history or the counterfactual is an attractive tool for a writer to use to do something beyond simply being interested in the point of divergence itself? Well, for me, uh, I mean, I think the, the book is for the writer mm -hmm. whose interest yeah. or the reader who's interested in alternate history. Uh, I mean, I can, you know, I can only speak for myself. I mean, sure. there are novels that I, you know, and I write across the genres from historical, contemporary, whatever. Uh, there are certain novels that I want to write that are, that live in altern in mm -hmm. alternatives. Uh, I mean, sure. I wanted to write a novel uh, about James Dean. And I kept thinking, you know, would it would it have made a difference if he didn't die? So it enabled to investigate a life in alternity where he's you know uh, you know where he goes into politics where he, where sure. he you know he's I mean I write it's for for me it's like uh, it's like lucid dreaming yeah you know. I, I get this beautiful, I, or th this idea that feels beautiful in my mind, and I want to bring it to life. And some, and, and the kick for that yeah. sometimes is, what if? Sure, sure. And what if is very attractive. But let me ask you this as a tool, as a as a thing. Does choosing to tell an alternate history with a known car uh, person, like in your case, you, you know, you've chosen to do. Uh, a novel with a secret history version of Leonardo da Vinci, who is well known. You are, right. have chosen to write a alternate history of James Dean, who was very, very well known. It gives the story additional clarity and gravitas. I was watching just yesterday a television program which was based on a fictional movie star being involved. So you don't get that true point of recognition. Recently, there's another very successful television show, Daisy Jones and the Six, which is an alternate take on a Fleetwood Mac story, but none of the people are those people. So are, does your story lend, you know, does it borrow uh, gravitas from having the instant recognizability of the actual person? No one has to sit there and go, it's not like you've written um, the James Dean novel, but it's 
an imagined 1950s movie star we've never heard of. It's James Dean, and mm-hmm. you're already borrowing and leveraging all of that. Yes, How that, important is that? That's a central aspect for me. For instance, when I was interested in writing about Da Vinci, I was looking through his notebooks and I saw, you know, these uh, these machines of destruction, you know, these wagons with with uh, with the iron spikes. I, I mean, and all of these ways to basically, you know, kill, destroy. And it was like. Uh, it was as if he was doing pastoral. I had no sure. sense that he, that, you know, that that he had made the connection to, you know, to actual bloody warfare, and that mm-hmm. led me to think of the the German, the Nazi scientists, you know, creating, uh, you know, the buzz bombs and all of this stuff. And so I asked myself, what if? Da Vinci could come face to face with the uh, results of his engineering uh, genius, and the only yeah. way I could do that was by using was by was by throwing him into alternate. Yeah, to give him an Oppenheimer now, moment, more or less, when he realizes that's, that's that's exactly it. And the only difference is in that being a secret history as opposed to an alternate history. If I was writing that as an alternate history, it would have given you a different picture of, sure. of where we are now. Well, then, if you're going to borrow resonance from historical events, if you're going to borrow gravity, uh, gravitas, whatever else, from historical characters, how much responsibility do you feel to play fairly with those those real-life people who you're putting words into their mouths and all these kind of things? It's something that uh, Guy Gavriel Kay talks famously about with his historical novel, you know, his fantastic historical novels where he sets them in a fantasy version of the world so that you're not dealing with putting words into the real the mouths of real people how much responsibility should an alternate history writer feel about putting words into the mouths of real people that they never spoke enormous the idea of putting words in the mouth of a historical character is something that historical fiction writers have dealt with since there's been historical fiction um i guess the thing is you're Yes, it's the same. It's an enormous responsibility that I took very seriously. In fact, the first half of the Memory Cathedral takes place uh, within known history. And look, I researched that for six years. I, I to the point where uh, <clears throat> you know I was being when uh, of, there's a Da Vinci exhibition of uh, recon- of his reconstructed uh, invention. When it came to Australia, I, I was, you know, mm-hmm. I, you know, I was asked to give the keynote speech. I had, yeah. for the time, become an expert, which I think as much of an expert as a layman, you know, can be, uh, on the subject. And uh, I was very worried because I, uh, in 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 my version, I had Da Vinci uh, being infatuated and in love with Simonetta Vespucci. It was sort of like, you know, the Marilyn Monroe icon of the time. Uh, however, Leonardo was gay. But I, 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 I found information that could be construed that, that he was, you know, that he was bisexual. And I was very worried about that to the point where I actually, now this is 20 years ago, mm. I actually wrote an afterword, you know, Explaining yeah. the hows and whys of how how I had come to that because I I expected this enormous backlash. Not one email letter, nothing was ever mentioned. Uh, but I had spent a lot of research time to make sure that you know that what I what I was doing w- was like, if not grounded in fact, yeah. was was seriously rationalizable. So. I think I think you have the same responsibility to write alternate history when you're using real people uh, as the historian. With the caveat, uh, and I'm going to mention the magical name <laughs> of Howard Waldrop, who for my money is one of the best short story writers alive in America. And a lot of the alternate history that Howard writes is, is inversions that have to be taken 
satiric, satirically as well as seriously. Yeah. Uh, I.e., I think Eisenhower becoming a, a baseball pitcher. I mean, well, Eisenhower was a, know, and, was a jazz trombonist in that story. I think. Yes, that's that, that's right. And you know, in the in the book, and uh, I asked a number of of, of writers to uh, to basically have a conference convention on the mm-hmm. page, and uh, a number of writers talk about you know, Howard's fiction, Mm -hmm. you know, some saying that he's breaking all the rules and it's wonderful. And John Kessel saying, no, I can't, you know, believe this. So it's, you know, as many writers as you have, you have different points of view. Well, that's one of the things I found fascinating about the book. And I want to emphasize that I know you wrote the book for people who are thinking about writing alternate history. And there, there are some studies of alternate history. You mentioned Karen Hellick's uh, book from 20 years ago, which is a terrific study of alternate history. Yeah, and that book is still, you know, iconic, in, 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 I think. Right. But the fascinating, uh, the, the, this uh, dialogue, and you've got all kinds of writers. You've got uh, William Gibson and Kim Stanley Robinson, you mentioned, Bruce Sterling, John Crowley. Michael Swanwick, uh, Pamela Sargent, Mary Rosenblum. Uh, I don't know how many writers are in that, but they all are responding to a series of questions. And it's a good chunk of the book. And the first thing that strikes me is that they don't all agree with each other or with you. They have their own... Uh, I'm sorry. I, they, they, don't, uh, they don't like to have rules, but they don't like to have rules to follow, but they like to follow their own rules in the novel they're writing. Does that make sense? Yes. Uh, and I... What I took from all of this, from the round table, is that uh, as a writer, uh, you know, and as a reader, uh, you take what's useful to you. I think Bruce Sterling says is that it, it doesn't have to be correct to be useful. And uh, I mean, this was one of the things that I wanted, wanted to convey. And I found this in, 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 in workshops uh, that I do that writers are so different temperamentally mm-hmm. in how they work that, I, I mean, Jonathan and I, when we did that workshop in Seattle, we saw there, there were some people that say, I could connect and actually make a difference. There were others that Jonathan could talk to and make a huge difference. And, you know, you know, I might as well have been in Paris. And what I tell when I'm doing a workshop, I tell I tell the writers, I said, if everything that I t- uh, that I'm talking about feels wrong and yeah. feels oppositional, it's not you. It's just that I'm not the right uh, I'm not the right person to help yeah. you because I work so differently than you do. I mean, you know, my partner Janine Webb, mm-hmm. she'll start a novel and then start writing in the middle. And then she'll be writing here. And I have to start at the beginning and, and, you know, and I learn what's happening. And then I go back and there are some writers who just start writing. You know, they don't know where it's going to go. I have a, and there are other writers who have every single scene plotted, you know, down. Yeah. So it makes it very difficult to, uh, to, to, to make hard and fast rules. What I tried to do with the book is suggest what needs to happen to make the story work for the reader yeah. and how the writer approaches it. That's, you know, Let's which talk- is why I used a lot of my own work and how uh, I work. Let, let me food. ask a question about scale, because what you're talking about are mostly variations, variations on science fiction, obviously, but also variations on historical fiction, given what we believe to be the historical record. Now, at a micro scale, let's say we talk about stories in which an individual faces different paths. The, the, the movie Sliding Doors was an example. Do you catch the train or not? And what happens? And Joe Walton has written a couple of novels about that, where the, alter, the alternate the change is only in that person's life and doesn't affect the rest of history at all. Now, that's a micro scale. The macro scale is a novel which I think Stan Robinson mentions in one of his responses. There's a novel by Harry Harrison called West of Eden, actually a series of, which goes so far back, he imagines the dinosaurs survived. They weren't wiped out by that meteor. And my argument would be, and I think this is kind of what Stan's argument with the Harry Harrison, that goes so, so far back in prehistory that it, it barely qualifies as alternate history. I mean, basically, if you're writing a novel in which mammals 
never became the dominant species because you're talking about things that are so far back in prehistory, you might as well be writing fantasy. At the other extreme, you're talking about a novel about personal choices that doesn't affect the larger history at all. Is it fair to say that alternate history is somewhere in between those extremes? Yes, and, and it's how you consider it. Look, let's take some definitions uh, describe alternate history as as being, you know, backwards extrapolations that do not contain fantasy magic or any yeah. of that. Yet, take a novel like Pavan. Yes, Keith Roberts. Uh, Keith Roberts, where where Matt, which is which is considered to be alternate history, and it uses magic. And Pam Sargent talks about her novel, uh, her novels about uh, about uh, Native Americans, uh, which are absolutely alternate history. Mm-hmm. And she says that, you know, the idea of, you know, magical thinking was such an integral part of mm-hmm. the culture that, you know, she, that she, you know, that she included it. So it's, 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 it's really quite difficult, especially uh, when, when you have uh, that demarcation point, that John Bar hinge, whatever you want to call it, which is difficult to, uh, uh, which is difficult to find. And uh, I mean, I believe, in, and I created a category about this where you can create an entire ontology, an entire different world, which is what I tried uh, uh, to do with Shadow, where uh, Gnosticism was a huge influence uh, on the Renaissance. And so I had people interacting with, uh, you know, with angels, etc., because I was using their belief system. So I consider that I consider that to be a category, uh, you know, which is also, you know, magical realism. It's this or that. But I was trying to I was trying to to look through the lens of, of alternate history and and uh, and separate different possibilities. So yeah. a lot of this is: Will you consider? You know, is it on the? Is is any given story? Uh, is it historical fantasy or is it alternate history? Sometimes that's that's that's, that's a mixed. Uh, uh, that's I think, think your argument there. and Pam, Pamela Sargent's argument, and it's also one that was made by Gene Wolfe in his Soldier of Sidon novels, which was essentially if the people in this novel believe this to be magic, if they perceive it as magic, then for the sake of the story, it's magic. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah. And, and, and it, I mean, I don't think I don't think you'd find many critics who would argue that Pavan was an alternate history. So, again, it's the, the thrust of the story. Yeah. I mean, you can call. OK, you're talking about the Harrison uh, uh, novel. Uh, and also uh, there's the Malachia Tapestry by Aldous, which is, you know, somewhat the. Uh, so do you consider that alternate history or not? Uh, I think in these, again, in these instances, I, I think in these, sorry, in these instances where, where it's fuzzy, I think it, it's uh, how important to the story is that hinge, is that, you know, that demarcation. And probably in the Harrison, it's not. It's not really. But it could, I mean, it could be examined through that lens, and then you make a decision. Yeah. But is it useful? Yeah, yeah. We talked a little about responsibility and whatever else. I'm curious as well. I mean, I know you've said that you don't read as widely right now as maybe once you did, but do you think that the challenges facing an alternate history writer have changed? Do you think it's harder to, or or do you you think a writer needs to be more careful, more careful? cautious, more considerate, more thoughtful than they used to have to be because of the kind of considerations that come into play. I mean, if you were to be a, if you're not part of the group you're writing an altered history about, if you're looking at a, a place, a period of time where it appears to be a well-known juncture point in history, but there are a lot of other things that aren't typically widely reported on at that time that were taking place, other points of view, do you, do you have more, more responsibility to foreground those different viewpoints and everything else uh does are you more likely to you know basically get in you know get into trouble by trying this or do you have to just be generally more careful do you think 
Absolutely. I think that, look, I wrote a novel with, with Jack Haldeman years ago uh, called High Steel, mm-hmm. uh, mm. which was from the perspective of, of, of a, a Sioux Native American. Now, uh, I had ceremony with Sioux people. Uh, uh, Jay was actually living on a reservation. Mm-hmm. Sure. But we're not Native Americans. And I, I you know, even when I, I was involved, I, I, I kept saying, I'm not a wannabe. You know, I'm, you know, I'm a white guy. You know, there's no mm-hmm. way that uh, could we could. And we felt the responsibility then. But could we write that now? Should we have written it then? Yeah. Probably not, actually. Uh, well, I think I think another side of the question. There's much more sensitivity now. Uh, but I, I know you, I, I knew you were you were you were working on on getting the point of view uh, correctly. I mean, I, I read High Steel a long time ago, so forgive me if I don't remember. I think the difference, one of the differences, uh, which we see in in some contemporary alternate histories. I know you mentioned uh, Nisi Shaw's Everfair. There's P. Jelly Clark's Master of Gin. In which you're looking at you're looking at history from a different perspective. In other words, alternate history, if it's only based on the received history that we got in our high school text, then you're talking about basically history written by white males, history written by the winners. If you start looking at African history from the point of view of somebody who's not H. Wright or Haggard, it becomes a different history, and the alternate history therefore becomes it. And I think I that's see right. that's what's happening. I think that you know alternate history of India, uh, let's say, written by an Indian writer, is going to look a little bit different from the, ex- quote, unquote, exotic adventures we used to get sure. in the 1890s. No, that, and, and that's a, a wonderful uh, addition. I mean, we're getting, we're, we're actually getting new perspective that you can't get from, that you couldn't get from what we had. Yeah. In other words, you know, uh, I mean, when I was coming up, it was it was women coming into science fiction, and actually, I think the case could be made, you know, during the sixties and seventies, that that women were doing the most interesting uh, interesting work. They were having, you know, a huge impact. But that yeah. was new at the time. I mean, go back to the fifties. So there, I, I think that I think there's a lot of charge happening now and i think that's i i think that's positive and interesting but it is a minefield for appropriation for someone like me if i write such and such a story am i appropriating someone's culture or am i you know now yeah we were worried jay and i were worried jay haldeman and i were worried then that we could be accused of appropriation. Sure, sure, of course. Let me ask you this, because we're segueing through to the the end of our hour, and it seems like one of the most unfair questions you can ask (laughs) someone when you've given them no time to prepare at all. But we've name-checked a number of... No, we've known each other a long time. Think before you say, okay. (laughs) We've name-checked a lot of alternate history books during this conversation, from Sprague de Camp's Lest uh, Darkness Falls to uh, Philip K. Dick's The Man in the High Castle to Keith Roberts' Pavan and Kim Stanley Robinson's The Year of Rice and Salt and, and your own book. But are there any particular alternate histories that you love that you'd recommend to readers to seek out? You see, see unfair. Listen, dear listeners, this is the one question I ask your <laughs> podcast now. Not to ask. <laughs> it's okay to say, don't, don't, I mean, you can say, look, let me throw in, I love the Yiddish Policeman's Union by Michael Chabon recently. I'm desperately looking forward to reading a new one, a book by uh, Francis Spufford called Cahokia Jazz. I share, I'm sure, your love of the Keith Roberts book you mentioned and of not only Howard Waldrop's Ike at the Mic, but also his alternate histories or whatever you call his screwball kind of approach to fiction. I've been engaged. I mean, you met name check John Kessel. He's done a number of fine alternate histories of his own, not the least books like The Dark Ride or whatever mm-hmm. else. See, I'm buying your time, Jack. I'm filling. Um, and see, so there's a whole bunch of these. Well, hang on. Is there a list in your book? Because we can say to people, seek out Jack's book yes, and it will have a list. Look, there is a list and there's 
there's a there's a bunch of writers that I want to read. New work from Lavi Tilder. Tilder, yeah. All kinds of That's people. People that you have been right now. The books that I would recommend are old from from you know from Pavan to to, to you know to Stan Robinson's uh, uh, to Stan Robinson's novel that you, that you had just mentioned. Because I'm in a period right now where I'm where I'm writing what I plan to do sure. in the current in the next year, because after I wrote this book on alternate history, I was completely blown out on <laughs> alternate history. You know, I, I, I needed, I needed a break. Oh, sure. So, yep. uh, so I am going to start reading again next year. And then I okay. will be able to ask you to answer the question. I asked you not to ask. Well, well as a service to reader, readers, I'm going to throw this to, to, to Gary as well. What about you? Have you read any great good ones lately, Gary? Alternate histories? Um, oh, lately. Okay. I was, I was going to say one of my favorites is, is, is an author who is in your roundtable is John Crowley's Great Work of Time. Which again is a version yeah. of African history based, uh, and, and it's 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 beautifully written. Um, I've written. I say, what have I read lately? That uh, there's a number of short fiction stories. Andy Duncan has done some interesting sort of in jokes. This is another thing we've talked about. Uh, they work very well as stories. There's a story in which, for example, he has John W. Campbell at the J.B. Rhine Academy studying psychic phenomenon which Campbell apparently actually applied for at some. Um, and, and to some extent, the challenge of doing something like that or the challenge of uh, writing a story in which, uh, well, Lavi Titter's latest novel, The Circumference of the World, has L. Ron Hubbard and Asimov and Heinlein at least offstage as characters. And it seems to me the challenge of something like that, if you're talking about a fairly narrow, fair, let's say in jokes, let's say something that, oh, one of the phrases I, I, that I loved in your book that somebody quoted Tim Powers as talking about card tricks in the dark, where you're, you're playing games, you're doing tricks that the reader can't see, but you know what they are. And maybe some inside readers will get this. It seems to me the challenge is to write a story like that, which is completely compelling as a story, but has a whole different level of meaning to somebody who knows about the actual history of L. Ron right. Hubbard and John W. Campbell, of course. I think, and I, I can't well, Michael Cass is writing some short stories in, in that vein, which alternate history, which, which, which are, uh, which are interesting. And since we mentioned Walt Howard, uh, I would go back and, and reread some of his stuff because uh, George Martin is, is making uh, short films out of three of his stories, one being the, the ugly chickens. Uh, and Mike Cassett is, 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 is involved with that. Uh, I think that uh, uh, a Howard Waldrop revival is called for. Definitely. On there. that, so note, on that cheery note, Jack Dan, on that cheery God, we note, we should, <laughs> we, should, we should wind up. The Fiction, Fiction Writer's Guide to Alternate History is out in the world now. You can get a hold of it. You can read it. You can engage with it. Uh, you can shout comments at the podcast about it if you like. But for the moment, Jack Dan, right, you thank, you so much, thank you so much time for making, for making time to talk to us today. It was my great pleasure. And until next week, then, this has been the Good Street Podcast.